Hello and welcome to Shameless Book Club. This month we read Transcendent Kingdom by Yar Jesse, a novel that centres around Gifty, a neuroscientist at Stanford who studies addiction and depression neural circuits through experimenting with mice. This, we come to learn, is no coincidence. Transcendent Kingdom deals with grief, mental illness and religion, and also takes us back through Gifty's life from her brother's opioid addiction to a disappearing father to being sent to Ghana to live with her aunt while her mother battles depression at home. Transcendent Kingdom was a New York Times bestseller and is Yar Jesse's second published work. Mish sat down for an interview with Yar about her novel, which we will play in the second half of this episode. But before we get there, Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews, welcome back. Hey, we're here. <laughs> Last one Hello. for the That introduction made me feel like I was walking onto like a game show set. I'm very excited to talk about this book. <laughs> Come on down. Guys, we're going to start things off by talking about the reception for the book and a bit of background on Yar Jesse. Zara, do you want to kick us off? Yes. God, Yar Jesse is very, very impressive. I feel like a lot of the authors that we've picked in the last few months have been particularly impressive. But Yar Jesse is only 31. So this is her second book. Her first book, Homegoing, was hugely successful. I mean, what I found very interesting when I was doing my digging on Yar before I even read this book is she wrote Homegoing when she was about 24, 25, I think, and sold it to the publishers for a seven-figure advance when she was only 25, which is just kind of nuts for a debut author. Yeah, I found this so interesting about her because, I mean, you and I were talking about this Zara via text message when we found that out. How did the publishers know to back her and back that to that degree? I think it's such a testament to what an incredible visual storyteller Yar Jessie is that someone could pluck her out out of relative obscurity at 25 and say, this is the woman who is going to change the face of novel writing for this generation. And I truly believe she has been that person in so many different ways. I mean, her first book sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It is beyond critically acclaimed. For that work, she got so many prizes to her name and so many accolades. It was interesting to have my first introduction to Yar Jesse's work with this second book because mm-hmm. I haven't read Homegoing and now I desperately want to because lots of people say that it, if not matches Transcendent Kingdom, it also exceeds it in some ways. Yeah, I haven't read Homegoing either. And for those who haven't, it's a historical novel first set in Ghana in the late 18th century about two sisters who were separated at birth. And it continues as kind of a generational novel that spans across four centuries and it, it delves into systemic racism and slavery of African people. But I think that there's kind of a difference between that book Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom in that this one is perhaps quieter and more narrow. Constance Grady reviewed this book in Vox a couple of months ago and she said that Transcendent Kingdom was more like someone screaming, which I think is a really great description of this book. Yeah, I I hadn't heard that, but that's really beautiful. I think when you read a book like this one particularly, it is sort of like this, it's almost like a consistent quiet scream that doesn't actually like leave the mouth. It feels like an internal quiet scream. I mean, just for some context on both of these books before we actually delve into Transcendent Kingdom, I know you said, Mish, that Homegoing had like a bunch of prizes but to me, it's the 180,000, more than 180,000 reviews on Goodreads with an average of 4.45 stars. It says everything to me. Like it's not just the people judging the prizes that love that book. It is the people reading it too. This one is already doing 
incredible things. It has about 30,000 reviews on Goodreads and it's only been alive. (laughs) I don't even know if alive (laughs) is the right word. It's definitely not for a couple of months and has an average of 4.2 stars. So Yar Jesse seems to be only at 31 years of age, the author for this generation. Yeah, absolutely. And an interesting layer with this one that I only picked up when I interviewed Yar at the end of this episode is that the book on the second page or whatever, you'll see that it's dedicated to Tina. And Tina is Yar's friend who actually inspired the entire story. So Tina works in a neuroscience lab at Stanford University and it was her research into addiction and into depression and into reward-seeking behavior that actually inspired Yar to write this book and I think it's it's not just a story obviously about mental health, religion, science, it's also a story about friendship I think because the friendship between these two women inspired the whole story. So yeah, I just love that that's how the genesis of this book came about and that it literally spurned from Yar spending time in labs and kind of getting to know mice. Speaking of labs and mice, it's time to move on what to the big segue, Annabelle. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I try. So one of the biggest themes in Transcendent Kingdom was the internal tug of war that Gifty felt between religion and God and the one she felt between research and science. Zara, did you enjoy examining that conflict between the two spheres? I mean, I did not enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I think actually, you know what? The correct word is I appreciated it. I appreciate the work that went into kind of, I don't know, exploring both parts of Gifty, be it her interest and almost obsession, borderline obsession with science, but also her deep love of religion. I think my first overriding thought when I read this book is it was incredibly refreshing to read a book that had both science and religion at the center. Like I can't really think of many books who have done that where both are given equal space and equal respect almost and both kind of given a space to coexist at the same time. I do have to admit, though, while I appreciated how science was at the core of this story, I'm not actually a very sciencey person at all. And I found some of it a bit dense, if I'm honest. Like I found it a bit hard to crack through. I almost prefer the exploration of religion and the human condition and the emotion behind all of that a little bit more interesting maybe than the science stuff. What did you think, Mish? I disagree with you there. I think I actually enjoyed the science elements of this book more or if not on the same level as the religion elements. I thought the science behind the mouse, particularly the mouse who kept clicking the lever to get that insure, I guess like that burst of sweetness that it found so addictive. I found that really interesting and kind of looking at how that mouse developed a limp and then looking at how through Gifty's work, she would kind of try and fix that mouse, like find ways to get it on a path to recovery. I truly found the science elements of this book so crucial to its storytelling. And I think without that science and without the density of some of that work and without proving that the author had gone to such lengths to educate herself about addiction and about, I guess, the mechanisms in the brain responsible for reward seeking, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as strong. I think the science actually was kind of the the infrastructure to actually tell the rest of the story. No, I agree with that. I actually probably should even just clarify what I meant by the science. I actually loved the mice. I actually thought they were almost a human character in and of themselves. And I think there was a lot of emotion behind the, the storytelling of the mice. I think it was more like the maybe references to studies a lot and things like that. But the storytelling behind the mice and the link between Nana's addiction and the addiction of the mice... I found incredibly enthralling and actually kind of emotional. What do you think, Annabelle? I agree. I think that the science aspect of the book was really important and it said a lot about the kind of personality that Gifty had or the intersection between 
her sciencey brain and her religious upbringing was really interesting to me. Like I didn't grow up in a religious household, so I can't speak much personally on what I imagine might be like a confusing intersection to find yourself at perhaps as you get older and become more exposed to more than just family life. In an interview with NPR, Jessie said this. She said, I was raised in the church, as they say, but I haven't continued to attend and have kind of lost a lot of that early grounding that I had as I grew older and started to feel kind of politically different than some of the teachings that I learned when I was younger. And yet I think when you spend that much time in a place, it really was just a huge part of my life. And it's something I found that even as I've grown distant from that, I can't completely disentangle who I am from this early period. And I think it's really interesting if you are someone who has grown up in a religious household, talking about how you grow up from that point. Like no matter how much you try and disconnect yourself from that later on in life, religion and the stuff that kind of shaped you as a child will always stick with you. I think that's definitely true. I mean, I wasn't raised in a religious household to the level that maybe Gifty was, but I do have like fairly religious family members. And I do think there is an element of that, like I'm not particularly religious at all but I think you also have empathy for how people respond to religion or appreciate religion and I think that always sticks to you I found it really interesting there was a really great review in the New York Times of this book by Nell Frudenberger who pointed to the very white church that Gifty's mum found herself sort of almost accidentally stumbling into one day and then sticking with for almost the rest of her life And there's this great line from the review that said, there's an agonizing fulcrum where you imagine what a black church might have done for Gifty and her family, how the story of their life in America might have been different. I think that was so bang on for me because if we're talking about the religious aspect of the book, it's like you can kind of see a parallel world where Gifty and her family could have found a home, perhaps a far less racist, more understanding home in a black American church. But the great irony of this book is they didn't. Mm. I find that distinction important as well, that I think what Gifty was even exploring in adulthood was how could she maintain that connection to God and maybe to spirituality or religion without tying it down to like institutionalized religion or a church in and of itself, because that church did bring about so much trauma. And I think one scene that really stood out to me was when Gifty overheard fellow churchgoers make very racist, prejudiced judgments on her brother and on her family and drug abuse. Like she was put through so much. On a lighter note though, I did find it kind of comical that scene between the young girls in the church and Miss Cindy, who was telling them to abstain from sex. And she was kind of standing in this abandoned abortion clinic and just spewing out the most sexist, archaic notions that women should not give sex to anyone other than their husband and that it's a covenant and you're supposed to break your hymen and shed blood on the night of your wedding. I just found that so funny. I think the story, and it's interesting because I didn't just read this book, I listened to the audio book in parts as well. And this was the first ever book I've done that for where I've read chapters and then followed it up with listening to subsequent chapters via an audio book. And the way the woman voiced Miss Cindy in the audiobook was incredible and the way she told that story was awesome and I wonder if it would have stood out to me if that scene would have gripped me to the same degree if I had just read it 
not listen to the audiobook version because Transcendent Kingdom as an audiobook, let me tell you guys, incredible, amazing. I don't know. I can, I'm answering this on behalf of myself, Annabelle. I'd wonder if you agree. I found that scene interesting, but not as funny as perhaps you did. So I think that says a lot about the reading experience versus the listening experience. What do you think, Annabelle? I found it a bit humorous as well, but I, I'm intrigued to listen to the audiobook. The only other audiobook I've ever listened to was Girl, Woman, Other. And I really liked how that voice actor put on different voices for different characters. So I imagine that scene would have been very interesting. I do want to touch on how that scene and how, I guess, Gifty's upbringing about sex and her own body manifested later in life. This was on page 133, and I think this told the story really well. In class that day, I stared at the diagram in wonder, the secret world and inner world revealed. I looked around at my classmates and could see their business as usual faces that they already knew all of this. Their bodies had not been kept from them. It was neither the first nor the last time at Harvard that I would feel as though I was starting from behind, trying to make up for an early education that had been full of holes. I went back to my dorm room and tentatively, furtively, pulled out a hand mirror and examined myself, wondering all the while how, if I hadn't left my town, if I hadn't continued my education, this particular hole, the question of anatomy, of sex, would have been filled. I was tired of learning things the hard way. Mm. That so ties in, I think, with what you were saying, Annabelle, that as much as we might try to pull ourselves away or detangle ourselves from the lessons we learned as children, that shame and that wiring stays with us and we need to actively try and deprogram ourselves out of those ways of thinking. Well, I think you touched on shame just then and I thought that shame was a pretty big theme throughout this, particularly when it comes to actually being someone that believes in religion, be it institutionalized mm. religion or just spirituality in general. I mean, I said at the start, it's very rare, I think, to see a book that puts science and religion so closely tied at the centre. And I think we kind of have a very shallow, generally, this is a big generalisation, but we have a shallow perception of people who believe in something greater. Like, I think we sometimes denigrate people who believe in God maybe equating it with believing in magic. And I feel like Anne did that or Anne was that character in this book who kind of laughed a bit at Gifty when she did pipe up and say stuff about religion in a science class. And I mean, I don't think any of us can deny that religion at an institutional level has done quite a bit of bad, but I think religion at an individual level can do a lot of good. And I wonder if that was what, you know, Yar Jesse was trying to tell. I mean, that that scene at the very end of the book where Gifty is in the church and there's a line in there where she said, I don't even like subscribe to the religion of this church. I just like going into the church. And I thought that said a lot that maybe some people aren't really tied to a a specific religion, but we tell them in order to be religious, they have to. When in reality, they just like the concept of God and believing in something bigger and that denigrating people who believe in these things as non-critical thinkers is probably a very dangerous way to go about our lives. I guess it's like feeling like you have a home, you know, like you're belonging somewhere. It's not necessarily about beliefs or like strong beliefs even, but it's just about feeling like you have people around you. And I think that the book painted that sense of belonging and that need for home really well. Mm. I think as well it's a good grounding exercise for any reader. I think that our generation in particular can be very judgmental towards those who are devout Christians or who are very vocal about their spirituality and their religion. And I think it's a good opportunity for the reader to go, okay, no one has the answers. Like no matter what you subscribe to, whether you completely shirk religion and you are completely atheist or completely agnostic, no one has the answers. 
differences. And I loved this quote as well from Gifty. This tension, this idea that one must necessarily choose between science and religion is false. I used to see the world through a God lens. And when that lens clouded, I turned to science. Both became, for me, valuable ways of seeing. But ultimately, both have failed to fully satisfy in their aim, to make clear to make meaning. I absolutely adored the explanation mm. that Gifty gave to Anne when she was pushed on the, I guess, lack of overlap between creationism and evolution. And the quote that stood out to me was, I think that we're made of stardust and God created the stars. It was just such a beautiful poetic way to put it. And also very quickly wrapping this, there was a line right at the end on the last page where the janitor of the church is coming up to Gifty saying, hey, Gifty, how are those little experiments going? And she said, I think he may confuse science for sci-fi as if like nobody has it figured out. Nobody knows the answers and the people that probably believe in religion don't always necessarily see science as this like hard and fast thing either. To them, it can be a bit magical and a bit sort of made up and a bit fairy tale like coming up after the break we talk about the best and worst moments and our favorite characters but first a word from today's sponsor As always, team, I am especially interested in what characters you gelled with and which ones you couldn't see as clearly. Tell me, Mish, who did you love? Oh, I loved the auntie in Ghana. I don't know. I think she was one of the few characters. <laughs> that was not who I was thinking you're going to go for first, but I appreciated it. <laughs> she was one of the few characters in the book, though, that really exhibited or exuded a sense of warmth, like a glowy warmth. I know mm. she wasn't a perfect character by any stretch of the imagination, but when she told Gifty she was proud of her, I don't know why I feel emotional about this, but when she said, I'm proud of you, and she pulled her in for a hug and Gifty got that human contact, I feel like that is what this child needed. This child was so vulnerable, so exposed, was so just dunked into the deep end of life from the youngest of ages. And so when the auntie in Ghana appeared, in the novel, it was like, finally, like finally someone to take this girl under their wing. And that's not a reflection of Gifty's mum, because Gifty's mum was also going through incredible trauma and dealing with her own stuff. But I feel like the auntie in Ghana really did save the novel in that part when we were going through so much desperation and so much depression. She just put that little glimmer of light in there for me to keep going. Oh, it was so nice. She seemed like an actual light. Like, I think you're absolutely right. It was this, like, glimmer of hope or glimmer of light in the middle of the novel. I mean, sorry for being an obvious one, but I did really love Gifty's character. Like, I loved being inside her head and sort of being on her side and, like, having the power of understanding her trauma while she struggled socially or didn't let people in and having all of that context to understand exactly why she responded to certain things in certain ways or refused to kind of let lovers or friends in as much and I that said though that really good New York Times review that I quoted before by Nell Frudenberger had a great quote where she wrote Gifty responds to America's challenges with success deciding that I would always have something to prove and that nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough to prove it to her classmates professors and even her romantic partners this dazzling performance is sometimes inscrutable unfortunately for the reader Jessie sometimes obscures Gifty from us as well when Gifty has a romantic relationship with another girl in college she muses we had kissed and a little more but I couldn't define it and Anne didn't care to 
I thought that was actually so bang on. I think sometimes Gifty, even though we were inside her head and beside her most of this novel, I do think, yeah, Jessie almost deliberately kept her a little evasive from us from time to time. Like we almost fully couldn't get inside her head or fully didn't understand all of her. And it seemed almost very, very deliberate that she was held back from us. What do you think, Annabelle? Do you think that maybe it wasn't that Jessie was trying to hide some of Gifty's personality and thoughts to us, but it was more like Gifty didn't know herself, mm. like she was had gone through all this trauma and the way that she wrapped her head around certain things was a bit confusing as well. Like she had gone through so much and I don't think a lot was clear to her either. So in terms of like Jessie's writing, I think she did a really good way of somehow clarifying Gifty's confused thoughts. In terms of like romantic relationships though, I don't think the readers knew much about Han or Raymond. So in terms of like my least favorite characters, they'd be up there just because I didn't really care much about Gifty's romantic life because of the way they were described. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. I I mean, it's interesting, Zara, that quote you read out before about the romantic relationship with Anne and it being kept from us. I didn't read it that way at all. I don't think that was an intentional thing from Jessie to – keep parts of Gifty hidden, I more thought that was a commentary on sexuality, that despite her very rigidly Christian upbringing, that this was still a woman who had found parts of her identity outside of that and didn't feel the need to like define herself as bisexual. She dated both men and women. It didn't need to be a big deal. I more thought that was a commentary on that side of things that She dated women, she dated men, it wasn't even enough of a storyline and bisexuality isn't enough of a storyline for it to be explicitly stated or there need to be this coming out narrative. Well, I think that's a really good point, but I thought the the really good point put by Nell Frudenberger in that review is you've got a young woman who has immigrated over from Ghana, who has grown up in a very conservative household. It is very likely that the internal monologue probably would have been far greater than what we got. Like realistically as if she's not going to have some internal musings about what all of that means. It is interesting that Jessie kept Raymond and and Han so distant from us. Like I found that I was desperate to know more about these people. Like these people have shaped Gifty in such a profound way. They've had such a seminal role in her life. And yet we were given what, like a page, maybe two pages cumulatively across the book about any of them. I found myself kind of like screaming out because sometimes I felt like, Parts of the story were repeated and I found in parts that this story was a bit repetitive, yet other parts of the story were so fleetingly touched upon. I was like, wait, this Anne thing and this Han thing and this Raymond thing sounds really interesting. Why are we only hearing about dinner parties and Raymond? Like surely there was more to that relationship over the six months and surely there was more going on than what we got. I didn't mind it because I was so invested in Gifty's family and Gifty's family life and her past. I just didn't wasn't curious at all about what was going on with Han and Raymond, which is why the ending surprised me, but I was just like I also don't really care that she ended up with Han. <laughs> yeah. I kind of agree with both of you in a sense of like I was wondering where the other layers to these relationships were, but maybe that was actually the point. Like even Catherine for a while there, I was like, she ends up being kind of a seminal character in this book, maybe more so than any other of the kind of outside players or the periphery characters. And yet I couldn't see her. I felt like her buildup was kind of very quick. Like she was sort of like mentioned once or twice and then she was kind of key character. But like I said, maybe that was the point. Maybe this story is literally about a mother and a daughter and a lost son. And the entire point of the book is talking about family. And those characters are very deliberately on the periphery because you know what? They have haven't had that much of an impact. The core impact comes from a mum and a brother. I wanted to talk about the Chin Chin Man because I thought his role in the book too was super interesting. What did you guys think? 
I hated him. He was infuriating, like completely baffling. And I spent the whole book being angry at him for being such a fucking coward. Maybe. But then I think there was that one line. Like, I agree with you. To leave your family and to leave your kids in the way that he left them is is pretty cowardly. But there was that one line in the book that I think probably spoke to his entire character where she said she'd seen how America changed around big black men. She saw him try to shrink to size, his long, proud back hunched as he walked with my mother through Walmart where he was accused of stealing three times in four months. Like, can you really blame a man like that living in a country like America for wanting to go back to his roots? Like, I don't necessarily think he made the right call, but I'm not particularly sure it's a headspace I'll ever understand or can ever understand. I had no issue with him returning back to Ghana. I had an issue with him knowing his daughter was back in the country and not seeing her for a month and not reaching out. That, for me, I was like, everything else I totally understood. He never wanted to move to America. It made sense that he would want to move back and restart his life. But, like, the fact that he didn't even reach out to his daughter, he didn't try to have a relationship with her, he really didn't care about her, was unforgivable in my eyes. I agree with you, but I also think – I know I just said I hated him, really (laughs) – dramatically but I do think there are also like a myriad of factors that make a parent do something like that I don't think it's as straightforward as saying oh he was a shit to gifty and he was like a terrible person maybe he felt distant from her for a number of reasons that I could never imagine because I'm not a parent I do sympathize with him no I I, I kind of agree with you Annabelle and this is what makes me wonder am I making too many excuses for him and this is where it will be really interesting to see if our book club agree But I'm also like, I mean, he was probably dealing with a a fuckload of trauma as well. And it's like, I don't know how people respond to trauma if that is an actual genuine appropriate response. Well, we know it's not appropriate, but legitimate response to not wanting to face anything, not wanting to see his child, to be reminded of Nana, to be reminded of the world that he left behind. I don't know if it's kind of a manifestation of shame, a lot of shame for leaving his family behind or knowing that Gifty's mum was struggling to the level that she was and he wasn't there. Like, I don't know if I'm making too many excuses or if that is, you know, a very human response to incredible amounts of trauma. Speaking of Gifty's mum as well, I couldn't do this episode without reading out probably mm. my favourite quote from the entire book. If I've thought of my mother as callous and as many and many as callous and many times I have, then it is important to remember what a callus is, the hardened tissue that forms over a wound. Oh, that's so good. We will no doubt, though, talk about Gifty's mother in this next segment because, of course, last but not least, Transcendent Kingdom beautifully and oftentimes painfully explored mental illness and how it can grip entire families. Through Nana's opioid addiction and Gifty's mum's battle with depression, we see how mental ill health can reverberate through a family. Zara, what struck you most about Yar Jesse's depiction of mental illness? I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I think that generally I thought they were told really, really well. Like the nuance of the roller coaster of addiction, the never-ending cycle of depression, the monotony sometimes of living with or around someone dealing with mental ill health was hard to read because I think it was so realistic. Like there was zero narrative arc for the depression but that's because depression just is like depression in real life doesn't have a real narrative arc either. And I remember saying to you guys, when I was reading this book, I thought it was great from sort of page zero to page 60 or 70. And then I thought it lulled a bit. And then I thought there was a point where it really came back, you know, about the 180 to 190 mark. And then it kind of lulled again. And I wonder now with hindsight, and that's actually why I really enjoy doing these book club episodes and these book clubs with you guys, because I think if I had have read a novel like Transcendent Kingdom alone, I probably would have 
closed the cover and not thought about it. But thinking about it with hindsight, I wonder if those lulls were exactly the point that a book portraying the real nuance of mental illness will always have long periods of not much if you want to tell it properly. I found the description of Gifty's mum climbing out of her depression or the depression lifting slightly on page 216 to be possibly the most poignant description of coming out of depression that I've read. Jessie wrote, my mother crawled out of her deep, dark tunnel, but perhaps this phrasing is too imprecise. The image of crawling too forceful to encapsulate the relentless but quiet work of fighting depression. Perhaps it is more correct to say that her darkness lifted, the tunnel shallowed, so that it felt as though her problems were on the surface of the earth again, not down in its molten core. I found that as someone who has struggled with mental ill health and has gone through bouts of depression in the past, that to be perhaps the most accurate description of the depression lifting. I think it took me reading the book in its entirety, including the pages on Nana's addiction and Yvdi's mother's depression to understand the depth of this book in terms of its exploration of mental illness, like even how Gifty's mother and her brother's experiences affected her own life and her refusal to show mental weakness. There's a quote that I wanted to read out, actually. Gifty said, The truth is, I'd started this work not because I wanted to help people, but because it seemed like the hardest thing you could do. And I wanted to do the hardest thing. I wanted to flay any mental weakness off my body, like fascia from muscle. Mm. Oh, that's... It's good. And it's also like, it's like when Gifty said in the book, sometimes I wish that Nana had cancer or something instead of the addiction that he has. And I think that's such a commonly held feeling for people both with mental ill health or people around people struggling. Because you're like, I wish it was something that I understood a little bit more. I, I think no matter how much we talk about mental illness, and I do think there's a real sense, particularly in Australia now, where we're really getting past much of the taboo that saturated the discourse. There is a sense, I think, inherently inside a lot of people that it's mental weakness, like that line where Gifty says, I want to flay any mental weakness off my body and something inside her subconsciously is still feeling that. I mean, Nana, we haven't touched on Nana that much in the book and I feel like he was such a cool part of it, but I just feel like the depiction of opioid addiction and who Nana was just perfectly captured how much of a waste it all was. And mm. he was such a beautiful character and such a beautiful sibling for Gifty. And I think the story of him and his addiction perfectly captured how much lost potential there is in addiction and how much you kind of often think of the parallel universe where things could be different, where he wasn't given that prescription, where he didn't find himself addicted. And I know we were talking about the mice at the top end of this episode and we were talking about how crucial they were for us to understanding the entire book. And I thought, I, I don't know if this is like a ridiculously obvious point to make, but one thing that really stuck out, stood out for me in this book was when she was telling the story of the mice and how when the mice, you know, had that little sore leg when they would push the lever, some sort of stopped pushing it initially, didn't want the end shore. And then there were other mice that sort of said, I'll give it a bit of a go, but then gave up after a little bit. And then there was like that third group of mice who kept hitting that lever no matter how much pain the lever was bringing and I thought it did a really good job of giving us empathy for addiction because it's like some brains are just wired this way and unfortunately we are so one-dimensional when we talk about addiction even still like the taboo is so lasting and it is so potent and it was the scene on page 161 where Gifty was talking about the incident where she and her mother were driving around the streets they found her brother passed out in a park it was broad daylight people were on their lunch breaks having a smoke or having a coffee or chatting with a friend, eating their lunch. And they all just stood there or sat there and watched as this young girl and her mother picked up 
this passed out man in the park and pulled him into their car and drove away. And I think it was that level of apathy, that level of silence and inaction that so many families touched by addiction would feel so closely to their hearts that sometimes I'm guessing it would be true for so many people they'd prefer their relative to have died from cancer or to have had cancer because there's no shame in having cancer and yet when it comes to addiction we talk about it in such hushed terms and it is so shrouded in secrecy all the time. I also found the description of the scene immediately after the park scene to be completely heart-chattering, where Gifty's mum was slapping her brother, mm. slapping him, screaming, this has to stop, this has to stop, why do you keep doing this? And then for him to so emphatically promise that it would stop, this was the last time for him to go to rehab and then relapse within 24 hours, it was just that completely hopeless feeling of realizing that he didn't have control over this nobody had control over this and at the end of the day the oxycontin was going to win yeah like this is a mental illness and there's always that disconnect between reality and what's going on in someone's head nana was able to tap into reality and know that like you know what he's doing is wrong but you know sometimes you just don't have control over these things and it's heartbreaking to see all that play out in this book and how it's affected so many other people's lives how his death has affected so many people's lives Okay, guys, we've heard what you both think. But before we hear Mish's chat with author Yaa Jessie herself, you guys know the drill. We need to hear what your ratings are. Zara, let's start with you. What do you give Transcendent Kingdom out of 10 and why? I swear to God, I'm always first doing these ratings. <laughs> um, interesting. I actually did think a lot about this before I came on because sometimes I've been sort of like flying by the seat of my pants. Is that the saying? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. I've been saying them very quickly. I did enjoy this book. I think there is something to be said about the headspace you're in when you're reading a certain book. This is the thick of December. It's really busy. It's probably the busiest work month that we've had in a long time. I've been completely devoid of energy, of time and reading. So to be totally honest, reading this book sometimes felt a little bit chore-like because of the headspace I was in. So with that in mind, I think I would give it about a 6.5 out of 10. I could really see the value of the book. I really enjoyed talking about the book and unpacking the book. But in terms of the experience of reading the book and how much I enjoyed it, I think I've enjoyed other books more. And I would love to know if people read this over summer or on a break or when they don't feel like completely exhausted and a little bit burnt out, whether the experience of reading this book is completely different. It's so funny you said that because I was going to make the exact same point that I think it was detrimental to my experience of this book that I read it when I did. And that's not a reflection of, yeah, Jessie, that's a reflection of me being super stressed and probably yeah. my mind craving sugary content right now, not really dark, heavy content about addiction. That said, I'm going to give it an 8.5. I think Opioid addiction is such an ordinary story in America. It's the most common addiction in the US. It is the most deadly addiction as well. And I think not enough people are talking about this. And I think the way Yard Jesse has spoken about it and her gift as a writer meant that I couldn't give it any lower. Like I think this was such a poignant, powerful book. If I had read it during a summer break, it probably would have gotten close to a 10 for me. That's how much I loved it. But I think it was more reflective of my mental state at the time to give it an 8.5. I agree with you both. I actually remember the day that I started reading this, I was already in a pretty shit headspace and I was like, I had to close it after the first two pages because I was like, no, I'm just going to go watch some Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something. <laughs> <laughs> this, can't, this just won't do. I'm going to give it an eight because I did 
love and adore Yar Jesse's writing. You know, when you're reading something and you read it again and you just think, I could never write something like this. Mm. I, could, I could never wrap my words in a way that she does to explain such complex issues. And I think she did that really well. So I'm giving it an eight, even though after reading those first two pages, I would have given it a two probably at that point. <laughs> but no, an eight overall after reading the whole book. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Where I'd love to start is where you actually started with this magnificent book. What made you want to write a book about addiction, in particular oxycodone addiction? Mm. Well, there are a couple ways to answer that question, but I think the most direct is to say that my best friend from childhood is a neuroscientist. Um, And around the time that I finished uh, Homegoing and was getting ready for the publication of Homegoing, she had a pretty major paper that was due to be published. Um, And uh, she was so supportive of me. I wanted to be very supportive of her. I sat down and tried to read her paper and realized that I didn't understand a single word of it. Um, She had always explained her work to me as being about addiction and depression um, and reading that paper or rather attempting to read that paper. I realized there was so much more uh, that was under the surface of that than than what I had previously known. And so I just asked if I could go shadow her in her lab. um, And she very kindly said yes. At that point, I didn't think I was writing anything about it. I just kind of wanted to see her research in action. Um, but her research is what I used um, to, to form Gifty's character. So all of all of the um, experiments that you see in the book are experiments that my friend actually did, um, in which this this woman, Gifty, and also my friend Tina, um, were trying to kind of understand the, the neural circuitry of reward-seeking behavior. So things like addiction and depression um, existing on a, on a spectrum of that. Mm, what a huge thing to undertake to wade so deeply into the waters of science. I mean, I am a creative person. I love writing, but I have never really gravitated towards science at all. Were you a bit intimidated at first or a bit nervous to be like, oh, shit, this is a whole world that I really don't know much about? (laughs) Well, I kind of like tricked myself into writing the book because at first I didn't really realize that I was um, going to be writing about this. I just kind of wanted to know a little more about what my friend did. And um, in, in so doing, I started to see that a novel was possible. Um, and like you, you know, I'm not like a, I'm not a very sciencey person. Like I hadn't taken a science class since college. So, you know, at least 10 years. Um, but it turned out to be really, really fun. And I think for me, one of the most interesting things about writing a novel is that deeply intensive research process where you um, are trying to, you know, understand something from the perspective of a character. So it it turned out to be um, a really, really fascinating and and great experience. Um, And when I finished it, I felt like I could maybe, you know, talk about optogenetics for like five minutes straight and know what I was saying. Um, It's all it's all left my head now. But um, but I was very (laughs) proud of myself at the time. One of those situations where you like lose all the helpful information, but you retain every fact ever known about the Kardashians or something completely useless. Exactly. Exactly. I think, unfortunately, that's one of the ways (laughs) that the brain works. (laughs) I want to talk to you about Gifty and the mice. I mean, I don't know if that's an unusual question, but it really stood out to me, particularly in the early chapters of the book, that 
I think so often when we speak about science and we speak about um, like animal testing or um, I guess lab experiments on animals, it's quite in quite a cold way that acts like the people who are doing such experiments don't have any compassion towards the animals, that it's this very transactional relationship. I have scientists in my family and and I know that that's not the case. And your book was the first one to ever explore that compassion that they sometimes feel towards those exact animals. Was that intentional or did that just come out organically? I think it just came out organically. But when I think about it, it seems improbable to me that that you could spend all day working with these living, breathing creatures and not develop some kind of attachment to them. Um, Though I'm sure there are scientists out there who would hear me say that and and think, you know, (laughs) it's a load of crap. But um, but just just from my own experience of being in the lab with my friends, like and I was with the mice for far, far less time than than she was. And I felt attached. Um, So it felt like a natural way to to write the book. I'd love to talk to you about the concept of shame. I mean, I feel like Gifty felt shame over so many different areas of her life, like when she was young, particularly feeling shame over sex or Mm. sexual expression, of being a Jesus freak when she was in professional, sciencey areas, and then not feeling religious enough for her mother when she was at home, and then finally feeling shame over her brother's addiction and his death. Why did you want to explore shame in so many different forms? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think shame is one of those incredibly formative um, emotions that all of us have that we that we don't often address or kind of, um, yeah, just kind of parse through as deeply and as intimately as perhaps we might need. And it's an interesting one, too, because I think that one of the things that shame can do is that it can kind of... Uh, throw up this wall around the area that is causing you the pain. Um, And Gifty is a character who I think of as being incredibly walled off. Her shame has erected all of these, um, these kind of electric, uh, electric fences around these areas that she feels deep pain. Um, And because of that, she has a difficult time getting to know people kind of allowing those walls to come down shame, as you said, um, around sex, shame around her brother's, uh, her brother's passing. Um, So anytime a person um, such as uh, Anne or Raymond, like attempts to kind of come into um, that, that electrical field, um, she, she pushes them away. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. shame is, is an emotion that does that kind of an, uh, that kind of action, like it it presses people back. Um, And, and I wanted to explore that, that idea, that kind of counterforce. In the book's penultimate chapter, you do explore one scene where Gifty's mother has a mental illness episode and she is swimming in her pajamas in public. Mm. And that for me was probably one of the most upsetting chapters in the book, that along with the scene where they are carrying Nana's body into the car and people are watching on and doing nothing. Why did you choose to, I guess, close the story of Gifty's mother's mental illness on that note before telling the reader that she had passed away instead of probably giving it a neat, pretty bow on the mental illness story. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to have this kind of um, really visceral physical uh, scene where you get to see Gifty's mother in the throes of her mental illness, um, partly as a way of kind of um, offering this uh, 
this closure to the opening scene where we see Gifty um, witnessing somebody in, in mental distress, um, very publicly in mental distress and experiencing, I think, for the first time in her life, a, a, a flash of compassion toward this, this man. Um, and so that, that ending scene of Gifty's mother experiencing a, a similar kind of public mental breakdown, um, I thought was like a nice way to, to understand how far Gifty had come in her thinking around um, mental health issues and how one can, can be compassionate um, and can approach the situation without the kind of stigma and judgment um, that we often ascribe to uh, people who are going through mental health struggles. Mm. I'm curious. I mean, this is my final question, but I'm curious as to how you felt saying goodbye to Gifty or closing the chapter on her as well. I mean, she was the sole protagonist in this book. That was new for you. And I imagine you would have gotten to know every nook and cranny of her being. And it must have been very difficult to be like, okay, I'm going to leave the story here. How have you gone since finishing writing and then releasing the book and going, I wonder what Gifty's doing now or creating (laughs) whole other universes in your head for her? Yeah, this is the part of, of novel writing or novel publishing, I guess, that um, that we don't talk about as often as authors. But you do have this feeling of being kind of bereft after you finish a book, you know, um, to spend so many years with a character, in this case, a single character, as you said, um, getting to know them as intimately as possible. Um, it's not like she just goes away, that all of that that time and effort and um, and care just disappears, you know, so... Um, so I think there, there has been, um, well, the book came out in the U S and in September. So there have been like a few months of me kind of getting to slowly say goodbye through things like this, you know, talking about the book and, um, hearing other people's thoughts about the book. Um, it feels like a kind of gentle releasing of it. Um, so, so that helps to, to have the events. And then the other thing that helps is to start writing something new so you can kind of (laughs) obsess over new people. Yeah. Thank you so much for writing this book. It is so powerful. And I just absolutely adored it. And I know our readers will too. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the December episode of the Shameless Book Club. Next month, we're excited to announce that we will be tackling Daisy Jones and the Sixth by Taylor Jenkins Reid, a novel that follows a rock band in the 1970s as they rise in the LA music scene and become one of the most legendary bands in the world, only to split up at the height of their success. The story was such a bestseller that Amazon picked up a 13-episode run for TV adaptation. Make sure you grab a copy either via the link in our show notes or via your local bookstore. See you guys next month. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.